Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is Central Texas Living with Ann Harder. Hello, everybody. I'm Ann Harder. Welcome to Central Texas Living, the podcast. In Central Texas is a significant archaeological site, one that you may never have heard of, and we're going to change that right now. Joining me is Dr. Clark Wernicke with the Galt School of Archaeological Research. It's located near the Bell and Williamson County line, kind of near Florence. Yep. And... Um, it is an amazing thing. It's one of the one of my favorite stories we've done for traveling Texas with Ann Harder because I was able to come there and see this significant site and and it has kind of changed how people are being taught in colleges at least about the origins of humans in Central Texas. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we had all been taught as kids that uh, you know. These half-naked guys are running around Siberia 13,500 years ago. and They came to a bridge that connects Siberia to Alaska, and they ran across it. And Then they came to a three-mile-high wall of ice, and apparently it miraculously parted. I always imagine, you know, Charlton Heston on top with multicolored <laughs> robe and a big stick. And There's a 2,000-mile-long passageway between them, and they ran through there, and they were kind of an Asian biker gang, and they killed everything they came across until 37 large animals became extinct. So I add a little sarcasm and Charlton yeah. Heston to that, and it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> well, it kind of does. Um, but there wasn't really a thinking that people were coming thousands and thousands of years ago. I mean, originally we thought it was the kind of the Clovis people, and that was, what, 14,000 well, years ago was the earliest? Well, we thought that Clovis, which is about 12,700 to okay. 13,500 years ago, represented those first people. Uh, when we're talking about something like Clovis, it's a culture, so it's it's stuff. It's mm -hmm. not people. It's, it's their garbage. But people like were using very specific and... techniques to make stone tools right. and other things at the time. I mean, think of the avocado appliance culture. You know, it's, nobody <laughs> wants to admit that they were a member of that, but the avocado <laughs> appliance culture became the harvest. Was. <laughs> you know, they became the harvest gold appliance culture. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's the same thing. We're looking at it through things. Right. Uh, that's the only way we can get to human behavior in the past. So uh, let's go back to the Galt story. Um, a gentleman named uh, Henry Galt owned this property back turn of the century, 1900-ish, and he's trying to farm that, not very good land, but trying to farm it near uh, Buttermilk Creek, right? Yeah, Is that the name of the little Buttermilk creek? creek? And uh, started finding all these arrowheads, I mean, lots of arrowheads, apparently. Well, lots of all kinds of tools. Yeah. I mean, they, it's a major manufacturing site, and was for a long time. And Henry wasn't a real collector. Uh, his land, though, was being looted very early on. Uh, the first archaeologist in Texas, J.E. Pierce, was the first one to go out to Henry's land. Henry invited him to take a look there in 1929, mm -hmm. and they did some excavations. 
but a friend of uh, J.E. Pierce's from uh, up here in Waco, Kenneth Ainsworth, who started the Texas collection at the Baylor, really at, at Baylor University, yeah, actually uh, went down there in 1930 and said that when he went down into the field, there were a couple of guys digging a hole. Mm-hmm. There were already people looting the site. So there was about 90 years of looting and collecting there. Well, and some of it was kind of a cottage industry. You'd pay a little money sure. and you could go out and get a shoebox full of Yeah, whatever. later on there was a pay-to-dig site. You yeah. Know. yeah, so so it's relatively short period of time when you think about it that that area has really been studied seriously well jay pierce looked at it for six weeks in 1929 Mm -hmm. um brought back 3,333 artifacts i don't know why it's such an interesting number but uh pronounced upon it at his desk that was the earliest archaeology in texas we didn't know much about archaeology in the west outside of puebloan sites at the time and uh, then it languished for a long time and uh, wasn't looked at again until 1991. So even though we knew this site existed, between all the looting and collecting, we thought that it had been pretty much completely destroyed. Yeah, but it, but it truly had not. No, most of the people that were working on the site were digging relatively shallow holes. Right, right. Um, in interviews with a lot of them, the, the folks that knew more about the archaeology of Central Texas knew there was a chance of something deeper down. But if they just paid $25 to dig a hole, if they dig a wide, shallow hole when there were more people here in Central Texas, in the more recent uh, you know, uh, archaeology, then they're going to go home with a shoebox full of stuff for 25 bucks. Mm-hmm. If they dig a deep, narrow hole, they may go home with nothing. So... Because of that and the fact that a lot of people are digging these holes in the summer when you don't really want to be digging a large hole in central Texas, they're digging relatively shallow holes and, in effect, protecting the older archaeology. So that was, that was a benefit. Let's talk about the, the different people groups that lived here from the most recent to the furthest back that you've discovered. Well, most recently in this area, you had the Comanche. Uh, right. Before them, you had the Apache. They were kind of pushed out of the way by the Comanche. Before that, you had the Waco and Tawakoni and uh, a number of the Caduan peoples, Hassanai, Wichita, folks like that that were down in this area. And before that, we don't know because we don't know the names. You know, the names we get, um, particularly for Native American groups, are usually not their names, first of all. They're the names that other people gave them, usually their neighbors who didn't like them. Mm -hmm. So many of them are not very nice names. Um, And, of course, the Spanish, you know, wrote those all down when they got here. So we have a whole series of names for peoples, not necessarily their name for themselves. But prior to that, we really only have the stuff they left behind, and we can't tell all the time if that's one people or a number of people. <clears throat> Think of the iPod culture mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the iPhone culture, <laughs> mm-hmm. since uh, I'm old enough to remember iPods and they're already history. But, uh, you know, you could go in the furthest reaches of, the, uh, of uh, Western China and find somebody with an iPhone. The stuff on their iPhone and the stuff on your iPhone is probably going to be quite different. But you'd both hold up your phone and go, hey. Yeah, you know? we got one. So yeah. finding an iPhone or a Coke <coughs> bottle or can or something like that from popular culture doesn't necessarily tell you there's different people there. You have to put all the things together that you find, 
all the clues, just like a good murder, you know, murder mystery, and try to determine what happened there. And clues all put together in a whole will tell you more about what might have gone on there and might be able to distinguish between one group and another. So what you originally thought was 13,500 years ago with the first people that came here. But you dug deeper and found 20,000 years ago, maybe. Yeah. Now, they, that's, a big, that's a big discovery. And, and we didn't expect that. Yeah. I, Galt was a lot of surprises. I mean, when we first got out to Galt, uh, first thing we found were these incised stones, stones with geometric designs incised in them, the oldest of which at Galt are the, actually the oldest dated art in the Americas. That's incredible. And we found uh, a mammoth mandible, the lower jaw of a juvenile female Colombian mammoth, and some of the other bones from her, surrounded by 22 butchering tools and a Clovis point, so a probable mammoth kill site. Really? Of which there's only about 17 known in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Then we had 2.6 million artifacts from about 3% of the site. That was a big surprise. That's just an extraordinary amount of, of data. And we've had 600,000 Clovis artifacts, which is one of the largest, uh, you know, uh, conglomerations of Clovis artifacts in the nation. It's one of the largest data sets we have to look at. And then when we were doing test units out there to show other archaeologists the site, found archaeology below the Clovis strata. Well, stuff who, that was between. Who started digging then? I mean, when did that well, happen? Well, we actually did uh, three test units because one of the largest gatherings of archaeologists in the world, the Society for American Archaeology, was going to be in Austin for the very first time ever. Uh, so we were going to bring busloads of archaeologists to the site to show them that stratigraphy. And we just, you dig down and you dig, I was taught you dig until you hit bedrock, water, or it's unsafe to dig. Mm -hmm. And so we dug all the way down to the underlying bedrock, which we really hadn't done very often there. We'd gotten into all this archaeology and slowed down by that. And we found all this stuff way down at the bottom above that bedrock. And it dates between 16 and 20,000 years ago. And that so, just upends what the textbooks had said. Yeah, it's significantly older. Now, we, we have a, a handful of sites that were found prior to this. Monteverde in Chile, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter in Pennsylvania, Cactus Hill in Virginia, sites like that that had older dates. But each time one of those found, you know, people go, well, I don't know. But when you start getting more and more of these sites, you know, there's so much data that eventually you have to change your ideas and say, well, I wasn't sure about the dating on that site. I wasn't sure about the artifacts on that site. But now there's 10 or 12 of them. There's enough smoke that you know there's fire. So you have to change your ideas. And while Galt isn't the oldest site, Mm -hmm. It's falling right in with a number of the other ones. So just a couple of weeks ago, there was a publication about a site at White Sands, New Mexico, where they have Pleistocene animals, including mammoths and giant sloth, and human footprints. Mm -hmm. And they were able to get a date from some plant material in that soil, and it's 23,000 years wow. old. And a colleague of ours who worked at Galt, Dr. Cyprian Argeline, published last summer in Nature Magazine about a Chicoite cave in Zacatecas, Mexico, mm -hmm. where they have 26,000-year-old dates. So I've been getting calls from people saying, what do you think of those dates? Like, I'm delighted. Because, you know, yeah, it's they're like, we got 20, 23, 26, right. 22, you know. Yeah. We're, we're starting to see patterns. Right. 
So you, you have to have a pattern. I mean, you've got this one site there at Galt um, that I, I think is interesting. It spilled back in, right? Yeah. I mean, what you, when you dug plane, and you found yeah. it, and you, you found basically what the floor of a house. Is that what yeah, you found? Yeah, we have the, the floor of the oldest excavated house in North America. It's at least 12,700 years old. But it's been covered over. <laughs> yeah. It's in a, fl- a floodplain. There's no way, yeah. way for me to protect to it. To preserve it. Unless, you know, uh, yeah. some... Somebody with a lot of money is listening to this podcast and has a good checkbook and yeah. wants to write a check. Well, there's other things we need might that money be something for. So. We could do. <laughs> we'll be back yeah. to you about the money. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you, you would have taken millions of dollars to build some sort yeah. of facility and so forth. But but what you have to do now is find another place yeah necessarily around here or not archaeologists are interested in patterns of human behavior we're not actually interested in artifacts or filling in museum cases or filling in the gaps in your history books we're looking at human behavior in the past sociocultural anthropologists look at it in the present and we're trying to model human behavior in the future so we're we're not so much about where we were as we are about where we're going and that's what we really need. But to be able to look at human behavior, what you really need in a broad scale is patterns of human behavior. That's what cultures are. When we talk about the Clovis culture, it's not a people, it's a pattern of behavior. Hmm. So well, what, what's involved in the Clovis behavior? Well, and, and the further back you go, the less data you have. Hmm. So Clovis hmm. is an awful lot of stone tool technology okay. and a tiny bit of wood and bone uh, that have been found. Hmm. But we don't get, you know, we get indications, for instance, that they had mats and baskets and clothing and bags. We just don't get the preservation on that. We can see the tools they had for making those things, which gives us clues. So, yeah, if it's a a historical site, you might have a written account of it. And you'd have a whole bunch of things laying around and you'd pick it up. I, I had one guy who worked for me who'd pick up a beer can tab, and he could tell you, because those actually changed through time, mm-hmm. he'd tell you, oh, this was made between 1963 and 1967, you know, things like that. Yeah. So we take all those things and we look for those patterns of behavior. Clovis is one of those patterns. Uh, and you can't use one site to form a pattern. One mm-hmm. site is just a data point. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly looking for other sites here in Texas to try and uh, find out what's going on there. And uh, we work with other researchers throughout this hemisphere. Yeah, and of course, you, you told me that there have been several, I mean, you're always looking for these sites. You're always... Constantly, yeah. I mean, here in Texas, it's a little more difficult. First of yeah. all, you know, 99% of the land in Texas is privately owned, and we have to be invited in. But folks do contact you. Yeah, we don't have any superpowers, so uh, we can't take land like, or artifacts away from people. Yeah. No. So usually people contact a friend of a friend of a friend, and they say, who can we trust? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they get in touch with us. And we have lots of people send us uh, pictures. Uh, you know, they'll text us or email us pictures of things and say, you know, I found this in my backyard. What is that? And the more eyes out there looking, the better it is for us. Mm-hmm. We tell people, just please make sure they're in focus. I get a lot of really fuzzy brown pictures, and I got to say, can you take guess. some more pictures? Anybody's It guess. might be a rock. <laughs> no, no. All right, Dr. Clark Warnke, we're going to come back. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear more about uh, his work at the Galt School of Archaeological Research. Stay with us. 
April. Hey, I'm Caroline, and this is Bloody Happy Hour. Your newest true crime comedy podcast. So grab your favorite drink and join us every week for Thirsty Thursday. We promise to tell you the bloodiest stories and give you a laugh in between. Go find us, follow us, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. Because guess what? We about to be sipping on some murder. This is Mandy and the F-Bomb, where we shed light on stories and invite you to find your place and purpose in the world of foster care. Through my involvement with families involved in foster care and being a foster mom myself, I've learned that it's the things that wreck us the most profoundly that can stitch us back together into the best purpose-filled versions of ourselves. Tune in to Mandy and the F-Bomb. It's stories that invite you in to find your place and purpose in the world of foster care. You can find us anywhere you get podcasts or at roguemedianetwork.com. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And we're back with Dr. Clark Wernicke, who's the executive director. Is that the right title? Yep, at executive the, uh, director. At the Galt School of Archaeological Research. And it's there in the Williamson County, kind of kind of close to Williamson and Bell County line on some property, beautiful property out there. Um, it was a private farm, and then it was kind of bought and preserved. Let's yeah, talk it, about that exact site and, and why ancient people thought that would be a good place to settle. Well, Henry Galt sold the farm in the 1940s. Uh, the, the family that bought it uh, actually eventually invited us in to look at something there and decided that perhaps it was too important for them to own. Mm. Uh, so uh, we went and talked to uh, an awful lot of people to try to raise the money. We were actually unable to raise the money. Everybody would say, oh, my gosh, this is really important. This is like a national cultural treasure. I can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Michael Collins, who's the chairman emeritus of the Galt School of Archaeological Research, actually dipped into his retirement savings and purchased the land himself oh. and then donated it to the Archaeological Conservancy, which is a nonprofit that protects some 500 archaeological sites nationwide. And the Galt School owns some land around it, and we administer and maintain the site for the conservancy. And you work sort of in collaboration with the University of Texas? Well, we have an office down at the University Mm -hmm. of Texas, and we have a project that we fund at the University of Texas called the Prehistory Research Project that enables uh, our scientific staff members to get benefits and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the the area there, um, when we got to come and do uh, our our television segment with you. Um, it's it's beautiful, but you said, you know, you came to Texas in the oh. summer, <laughs> and you wonder, why would anybody want to settle here? But there were definite reasons. Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, uh, it, the Edwards Plateau, which we think of as a very dry place, is where much of the water in Texas comes from. It's where four of our major river systems start. The 15 largest springs in Texas are on the Edwards Plateau. So it's dry near the surface, but it's a giant sponge filled with water. And so even at the Galt site, we have six springs that run pretty much all the time. In a wet year, we counted 32. Really? Uh, So water is one of the important reasons why people are coming to the edge of the Edwards Plateau. It's also what's known as an ecotone. It's where environments transition into one another. 
So a short distance away is the Blackland Prairie, the coastal plains oh, down near I-35. Yeah, Waco and those deep farms yeah. and everything. Mm -hmm. And we're actually at the conjunction of the Balcones Canyonlands, the Edwards Plateau proper, and the Lampasas Cut Plains to the north. And then the valley that Buttermilk Creek is in is completely different from everything around it. Mm. Uh, we tell people on tours it's kind of like living between, you know, in the alley between HEB, Randall's, Lowe's, and Home Depot. <laughs> uh, pretty much everything you could want is yeah. there. Yeah. There's also ancient trade routes that go through there. Now, uh, that's fascinating because there is a, there is a stone uh, that's right under the uh, Edwards Limestone, right, called Chert. Chert. Yeah, tell them about that. Chert has got a fancy name. It's called a cryptocrystalline silicate. It's, a, it's a, 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 a stone made of silica crystals. Uh, it's akin to quartz. Mm -hmm. uh, opal, chalcedony, jasper are also cherts, as is flint. Flint is a type of chert that's formed in chalk. And the Edwards Plateau, which is about 34,000 square miles, is ancient seabed. That's where you get all those little marine fossils yeah. in there. It is the largest source of chert in North America. We find Edwards Plateau chert more than 1,500 miles away archaeologically. I'm convinced it's probably further than that. It's just that archaeologists further away than that probably have no idea what they're looking at and write their reports and say, I have an unknown chert source. I don't know what source. it is, yeah. We've only recently developed a way to kind of fingerprint that. Hmm. So people are looking at that as well. But so, so the people living there, they were trading yeah, this They're trading stone. the rock. Yeah. Yeah. And today people still trade the rock. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, you said that's a, it's worth three and a half dollars a pound on really? eBay and Craigslist. So uh, you got modern, it on your property. <laughs> modern flint nappers still pay a premium for Edwards Chert. It's one of the finest materials you can make stone tools out of. It's stronger than steel. It's it breaks in a predictable fashion with a razor sharp edge. Mm, so perfect for making tools. Yeah. Or implements for killing things. Uh, and there at the Galt site is what's called a midden. It was like a big, like, explain what that was. We were standing on this and you could just pick up these bits yeah. of chert that were garbage. You said it was garbage or leftovers or refuse from what they had been Yeah, there are several middens doing. actually out mm -hmm. of Galt. And, and uh -huh. midden's just a fancy academic word for garbage heap. Garbage heap. That's basically what it is. Uh -huh. Primarily people out there were processing food in these large uh, semi-underground ovens. Hmm. Uh, one of the foods they processed was basically just the uh, a flower bulb uh, from the area. And it really needs to be transformed in heat. Otherwise, it's uh, something that your body can't process very well. So people are building these ovens and building a big fire in them, then putting the food in there, putting grass and leaves and, and stuff over it, and then the dirt over it and wait about 30 hours. So you got to cook it to change its chemical uh, properties. And then uh, when they do that, these ovens get very, very hot. The stones you line them with break up under the heat. Limestone mm -hmm. breaks up under high heat into just fragments. You have the remains of the fire. You have the remains of the plant tops that you got rid of, the stuff that you put over it, the grass and weeds you put over it when you closed it up. You probably have a bunch of hearths around it because watching a bunch of smoking piles of dirt for 30 hours is pretty dull. <laughs> so people are cooking food mm -hmm. and they're manufacturing tools while they're sitting there waiting for this to be done. So you build up quite a big pile of debris, including tools and tool fragments, which is why a lot of collectors look for, for middens. Mm -hmm. And when I was out there, you know, I had one in my hand. I said, can I take this home? 
And you said, no, you may not. No, no, it is on the National <laughs> Register. And right. It is a, a state antiquities landmark. And yeah. you can't take things from uh, an archaeological site like that. It actually, everything that leaves that site changes the story a little mm. bit. Mm -hmm. Just like any good murder mystery, you know, you think one person did it throughout the whole mystery, and then they find that cigarette butt, and it's obvious it was somebody else. Yeah. yeah. You know, one artifact can make quite a difference. Well, you've already, I mean, you've told me, the activities of these people based on what you've found. Um, and, and then they would take this cooked bulb. I, I think it's remarkable they figured this out, number one, that people could figure yeah. out they needed to do this. And then they'd grind it into a flour, right? Yeah, you could grind it into a flour. You could mm -hmm. make a flatbread out of it. You could use it as a thickener in a stew. And then if it got wet? Um, well, if it got wet and they left it hanging around, it probably fermented. And everybody sooner or later figures out fermentation. So, you know, somebody just says, wow, that stuff was really tangy. And he's been acting like an idiot all afternoon. We need more of that, you know. <laughs> all that from this just pile of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what brought you to Central Texas? Tell me about your background, Dr. Warnke. Well, actually, I uh, started out uh, way up north in Wisconsin, but I'm not very enamored of cold weather, so I moved <laughs> south as fast as I, as I possibly could. I actually majored in history and took a lot of archaeology as an undergraduate, but at the time, the only jobs available were actually in academia, and there aren't too many of those. And basically, people stay in them until they kill over dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, there weren't really any job opportunities. So I actually went into business for a number of years. Uh, I actually got an MBA and was in the uh, lumber and building materials business for a long time. Yeah. I was doing consulting and uh, living in Florida at the time. And of course, in an economic downturn, the first person to go is the consultant. <laughs> so I was sitting around at home, and I don't sit very well. And some friends of mine said, you never shut up about archaeology. There's a school less than a mile from you that teaches archaeology. Why don't you look at that? So I actually went back and got my master's and PhD in archaeology. And with my MBA, I organized large projects. Uh, so uh, actually prior to coming to Texas, I worked for nine years on Amaya City. Hmm. Yeah, so was, you've got quite a range of experience yeah, which is kind of unusual in archaeology yeah. because normally as a student, you're uh, pushed to focus on a time period, mm -hmm. a particular culture, or a particular geographical area. And but you because, sort of stick with that. Yeah, well, yeah. because I was partly because I was going back to school as an older adult, I don't take pushing very well either. <laughs> but yeah. also the fact is, is that all archaeology is actually business. It's fundraising and accounting and logistics and personnel and they don't teach archaeologists how to do any of that. So right, right. I had an opportunity to be able to do that for large archaeological projects. Yeah, perfect fit for the uh, Galt School. Um, you do raise money. And I know there is a, a project, a video project, a film. In fact, film? Oh, should I call it a oh. film or a video? It's It'll a, be a film. It's going to be know. a film. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that because there is a. a it's going to be a crowdfunded thing or they're still working trying to... Basically, Raise they're still money. raising the money, yeah. And it was, a, a person came to us, Olive Talley. Uh, mm -hmm. She's a three-time Emmy nominee. Uh, she really knows what she's doing with this, has done some really remarkable work. And uh, she said she actually learned about it from somebody on a trip she was taking in Antarctica, of all really? places. And a guy was talking about this incredible stuff in Texas, and she said, 
I'm from Texas. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, kind of like me. Yeah. I've never heard of this place. So yeah. she came out and talked to us yeah. and uh, got very enamored of it and said, I, I really would like to do this this film project. Mm-hmm. And so we've been cooperating with that now for and some time. And there's a trailer available. There is a trailer. Right, a Facebook location. She has, a, she has a webpage called galtfilm.com mm-hmm. with actually several trailers on there. There's a new one that just went up. Yeah, I think you're featured um, in I'm one in of them. I'm in there somewhere <laughs> in the middle, yeah. Well, and so she's got about 200000 of the 600000 they need to get to get this thing fully uh, produced. And uh, so we've included you know, in our posting where you can go to that Yeah, she's got some right now, some offers of matching grants. Mm, that'd be so, great. So, you know, donations to her project actually get doubled yeah. in the end run. But you're no stranger to uh, doing a lot of television interviews on this kind of thing. In fact, you even did one for Nova with Alan Alda. Well, we did Scientific American Frontiers with Alan Alda, and we did a Nova show as well. Oh, a Nova, okay. And five shows for the BBC and shows for Korean public television and Japanese public television and German, German. public television. And so it seems so like the whole world knows are, about yeah. the Galt site, but, yeah, but, but I fear a lot of local closest. people <laughs> really have not um, have not heard of it. And, and it is just fascinating. And it is a kind of place that you can go and visit. It's locked up tight. It's a private thing, but yeah. you do, do, have, do. Yeah, we have monthly scheduled tours of the Galt site. There's actually a uh, schedule of those on our events calendar on the first page of our website, which is galtschool.org. And uh, we will also schedule a tour for any group of 10 or more calendar allowing. So uh, we have school tours out there. We have master naturalist tours and history club tours and DAR ladies and rotary <laughs> clubs and you name yeah, it. So. Yeah, well, it, it is a fascinating trip. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time out there uh, with you because it's just it's sort of unexpected in a way that it's that it's even there. And they've been able to find so much information out from that bit of property there. Uh, The Williamson County Museum and the Bell County Museum both kind of work to help. Uh, schedule and coordinate some trips. Yeah, they organize those monthly uh, tours. We give them, but they organize them for us. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, and you're still busy. I mean, it's still a work in progress. Obviously you're still looking. Well, we're not looking at Galt. Yeah. Uh, Excavating more at the Galt site would give us statistically more of the same. Right. So we are looking at usually about 10 to 15 sites here in Texas every year. Mm-hmm. We need to find other sites like it. Similar dates, similar artifacts, similar geology. And we have volunteers that actually sign up to work on that. There's some 300, I think, on the call-out list right now of people who always wanted to get their hands dirty. And we have volunteers in our lab as well. And our website has a tab right on the front page that says volunteer. Oh, it's great. Your website is great. And, uh, and of course, you've had a number of, of students, you know, interns from UT, I guess, and you've got lots of PhDs that have come out of the work uh, there. We've had 16 master's theses and six doctoral dissertations so far. There's several uh, being worked on right now. We have 15 students and volunteers in our lab right now. Yeah. So. Well, it is a it is wonderful work, and uh, Dr. Warnke, I cannot thank you enough for spending some time with us here to tell us more about the Galt School of Archaeological Research. And 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 again, what is that website? It's www.galtschool.org. Very good. Thanks so much. You're welcome.
Central Texas Living is part of the Rogue Media Network family. Be sure to check out their other shows at RogueMediaNetwork.com. Please rate us five stars on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Join us again soon for more Central Texas Living, the podcast. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 